You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, January 10th, 2018, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Kara Santamaria. Howdy. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Good evening, folks. Jay is back I'm from back. the dead. <laughs> the land of the dead is a terrible place, guys. You don't want yeah. to go there. I had hand, foot, and mouth disease. Ew. <laughs> So it before you get nasty. totally grossed out, it's <laughs> it's, a, it's a virus, okay? So it's like you know you can think of it like it's a cold, it's a flu, it's a, it's another virus out there. So you get cold symptoms. The first thing that can happen, and what does happen to most kids and adults, is you get the flu, you get like a fever and some flu symptoms. Kids, you know, have a varying degree. They can have like, you know, they'll get some rash a little bit here and there. Some kids worse than others. But a lot of times, I think kids, for the most part, they don't get it as bad as adults. Very similar to chicken pox. Like if you get it as yeah, an adult, true. it's really bad. So I got it as an adult. Yeah. And let me tell you, it was really bad. It was really bad. Like this was the worst sickness I've ever had in my entire life. It's been a week and a half. You know, I'm not contagious anymore, but I still have cold symptoms. I'm still, I still feel lousy. But the worst part of this whole thing was that you get sores all over your hands, your feet, your legs, your backside, and your throat. And your ass neck? Yeah, and your ass neck. So, <laughs> it started, I got one little bump on my hand. That's nothing. And my wife was like, you're not going to work this week. And I'm like, you're out of your mind. You know, I'm like, it was right after New Year's. It was New Year's Day when she says that to me. She's like, hey, the, you know, we had a, a kid at, at the house that had, you know, the, this virus. And, you know, that was for Christmas Eve. Our kids got it. They got the fever and they were fine. They got She's the like, fever. You're, you're showing like, you're showing the adult you know, fever blisters, you're going to, you're going to get covered in this stuff. And I'm like, Oh my God, maybe it won't be bad and all that. And I'm telling you like 11 in the morning, I noticed the red dot in my hand. And by four o'clock that night, I wanted to rip my hands off with like a, a mechanical chicken de Skinner. I, that's, that, that's where I was at with this. And it lasted four full days of just not knowing what to do with my hands. Oh, agony, agony. The itchiness was so profound, like calamine lotion, that stuff is a joke for this. Like it doesn't do anything. You know, I you, you got to keep your hands moisturized too because you, your skin starts to get super dry. And at some point, I'm just literally walking around the house while hobbling around the house because I had the blisters on my feet. But you're walking around the house like holding my hands out in front of me. Like, what do I do with these? You know, like mm-hmm. they're they're not usable. They're no longer ten digits. It's just area of skin that is causing you so much pain and discomfort. You can't believe it. So, it's you know, like that being was, in the agony booth with Captain Morgan. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, oh, by Thursday, uh, Thursday afternoon, I felt the itchiness start to, to drop. And it was like, oh, my God, you know, I could start to, like, bend my fingers and, like, actually, like, flex my hands a little bit. And then just every day since then, it's a little bit better, a little bit better. And the, the blisters, like, dried up and now turned into, like, super deep tissue, like, calluses. Yeah. Um, we saw you on Sunday when we did the show and. You, uh, your hands look like they were polka dotted. You know, like they were bad. It's very humbling. I, I, I dislocated fingers on my right hand in a very, very like two mile an hour slow uh, mountain biking accident that I did all by myself. <laughs> uh-huh. I was almost going in reverse. That's how slow it was. But when you when you lose <laughs> the use of part of your body, it it's profound. Your life stops. You you're not living when the, things like this are happening. You are just going from moment 
to the moment, like just trying to get through it. You know what I mean? I, I, I think the lesson here is you got to be really, especially, you know, in, in colder climates where people spend a lot more time indoors and, and things like that. You really got to be careful sanitize wise, you know, like wash your hands often in the winter. Mm-hmm. Um, you yeah, know, just leaving the restroom at work. You know, I was thinking like, wow, I can't go to work. Like, I can't, I can't be around my coworkers. Even if, if I had extraordinarily good etiquette, you know, I just touch one surface with the, with something like hand, yeah. foot and mouth and it could live on that surface for long enough for a lot of people to get it. Well, that's the thing. I know we've said this before. It's like, just don't be a hero. If you have a communicable disease, stay home. Yeah. You know, yeah. don't, don't share it with the whole office. I don't know. Steve, I'm interested in your opinion on this, but like I had – I think I had norovirus for about two days earlier this week, which is horrible. Um, but I'm feeling much better now. And when I was looking at hashtags, like norovirus hashtags on Twitter, there were so many hospitals saying like, if you think you have this, wait it out. Don't bring mm. it to the hospital. Like we've had to shut down wow. wards because it's so contagious. Nasty. And yeah. so it must be a tough thing to be in that position where you're like – Am I so sick I should go to a hospital or am I so sick I shouldn't bring this to the hospital? Yeah. That's interesting to think like you could be in a situation where the hospital doesn't even want you. Yeah, because it's you're not so sick that you can't take care of yourself. You know, it's like it's a virus. It'll pass on its own. You're going to feel miserable, but you have to wait it out. But you could make a lot of people who are immune suppressed really sick. Yeah, Yeah, you have to use judgment. Mm -hmm. You have to use judgment. Ironically, if you're sick, you should not go to the hospital. (laughs) If you have a communicable disease and you don't need to be hospitalized yourself, stay away. That's always a a good rule of thumb. And if you have kids, you know, be you know, be alert to your kids' symptoms. And if when in doubt, keep them isolated too, because that's you know that's a large reason why there's so many viruses going around in the winter. As Jay said, people are just. People are crammed together. Kids are in school. They're all together. Kids are just slobbering all the time. Mm. So, yeah, they're just, they're just <laughs> little, sh- little mucus factory. Yeah, they're just right? shedding viruses everywhere. Maybe we should make more use of general purpose hazmat suits. <laughs> general purpose ones? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I could see that. Yeah, but it's the, it, it really is the little things like keep, for, on a personal level, keeping your hands clean and, and trying to be aware of like how all the different things that you're touching. Like when you pay attention and you get, you build up a little bit of a mind for like how much surfaces you're touching, like even walking through the office, I, I found myself just because I like stimulation. Like I like to run my hand on countertops when I walk by them. Don't mm. do that. I, you know, you just do these things unconsciously and then, you know, I know it, it, it <laughs> might be weird. It's true, Bob. But you know, we we, we live in a physical world. It's like I just like the way things feel. I like the tact- tactile stimulation, and I'm like, wow, I'm I'm sick. You know, if I do that, well, tactile first off, junkie. you don't want to get more sick. Like Steve freaked me out with like the super virus. What did you call that, Steve? No, it's just if you get sick on top of already being sick, it's a super infection. Yeah, that's which is bad. not uncommon because it's usually more than one thing going around. And if your immune system is busy fighting off one thing, it's going to be more susceptible to getting another infection. Yep. But Jay, there's some good news. Yes, good news, everyone. Uh, <laughs> I got a virtual reality headset for Christmas. Oh, well, boy. be fair, Steve. Yeah, you got it because I. I yeah, texted she, your wife and said, this is what you should get Steve for Christmas. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, you basically that's convinced nice. my wife that that's what I needed to get. And it was a great recommendation. It is awesome. Uh, really, really loving it. I got the Vive. We, we've talked about it on the show, but it's just different when you, when you experience it firsthand. It is. And I know Bob was over on a couple of days ago on Sunday, and I had already explained my experience to him. And then he put the head 
that right you Bob you put it on what was your experience you, you were... it it was amazing I haven't been in real VR in quite a while just waiting for it to mature enough and it was amazing I mean you had me I put it on first off I, I, the interface was fantastic the graphics were really good I love how it tells you oh by the way there's a wall here is it just like yeah. a, it was like a grid puts like up a, a grid yeah, yeah like a um, holodeck grid and like up oh, there's a real wall there so that was great so Steve's like go in the elevator hit the top button I go to the top button the door opens and there's like a pirate's plank walking out into the open <laughs> air above 40 stories and i've nice. i've jumped out of planes i've been in a hang glider i've been in a sailplane i mean i've done this crazy stuff i was intimidated as hell because it was so realistic the immersion was so good and it was fun because because i knew i was safe of course but i was kind of just kind of embracing the 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 visceral fear because it was so realistic i was hesitant it took me like 8 to 10 seconds to to step off that plank because it was just so real and of course once you step off the plank you fall and you die but it didn't hurt or anything but it was amazing so amazing that's an upgrade if you want the pain simulation yeah. uh, module that's extra so that's you had a legitimate moment of pause because Yes, your brain was telling you this is real and this is dangerous. I, Jay, it was visceral. It was surprisingly realistic. Yeah, so that's what I was surprised at too. With it, that it, the immersion is seamless. It works. That you are in the physical space that you appear to be in. You know, it, I was pl- playing. Um, cause I'm exploring some of the different games that I'm playing with my daughters. Which I was playing a Rick and Morty VR game with one of my daughters, oh. and you're basically in their house. <laughs> you guys just salivated. You're, you're, you're in, it's, a, it's cartoon, but you're in their world. You're in their house. You're in the garage, and you can interact with everything. You can pick up anything in the garage. Wait, and you didn't put me in Rick and Morty's universe? Why? Why didn't you do that? I hadn't Next time, hadn't okay. But it, the you know like the immersion and the feel is so real. I actually almost fell because I tried to lean against a virtual counter. You know what oh, I mean? Oh yeah, like, that happens all the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whoops. Better it's, make it's sure a, that you don't go into any virtual toilets, Steve. Right? Yeah. <laughs> when I when I I was in I was in VR in Steve's house for like what, Steve? Ten minutes? Yeah. Yeah. When I when I handed him the, the goggles and stuff back, I said, "Civilization, not civilization, not forever. civilization is doomed." But I am con- even more convinced now that in the in the future we are going to be spending a significant fraction of our life in VR. It's just going to be like why why deal with reality when you could create your own universe and still communicate? You could still do work you could still buy you could still do a lot of useful things and you know besides goofing off you could do a lot of great stuff i mean it's, <laughs> it's going to be people are going to just be so addicted they're going to be like yeah. you know smelly and unshaven and unclean you know unclean in their chair because they've been in vr for three days <laughs> some yeah, I mean, people it's will gonna be happen that. some it's, people will be it's like a cool that. coincidence <laughs> that ready player one is coming out soon yes. i guess right Ooh, in yeah. april yeah. Yeah, yeah there you go um, there i you read go. the book the book is fantastic oh the book is wonderful, especially if you if you looks cool. have any knowledge of the eighties. You, you you will completely appreciate the book. Oh. But I mean, you know, I agree with you, Bob. I think when you think about the way that we could use augmented reality or use virtual reality to enhance our experiences, I mean, you could, as an example, you know, there'll be apps like this. Like, do you want to walk yeah. around Rome? 
Do you want to walk around, you know, places oh, yeah. in foreign oh, yeah. that, countries? Well, they're, Jay, they already exist. I mean, so I, I've been dabbling with, with you know, partly because I wanted to talk about it on the show in as many different kinds of things as possible. So here's like the quick overview. For video games, it's awesome. It's just an awesome video game interface. The, the ability to look around corners, for example, to interact in three-dimensional space with everything there. My favorite game right now, it's, uh, in, it's the lab produced by Valve and it's in the Portal universe which is fun but this this one game is you're defending a castle so you're like standing on a tower you have a bow and you shoot arrows and the shooting of the arrows and I'm an archer I shoot arrows you know obviously you're not physically doing anything the technical skill isn't there but in terms of the aiming and the physics of the arrow and everything it's pretty realistic and I you're you're defending your castle as the barbarians or you know you have to shoot all the barbarians before they break down your gates it's really fun you could peek down you know the wall and it's amazing amazing gaming interface for entertainment so i i watched like a little short vignette like a little like a movie short animated and it was really good and you're like standing in the middle of the action you can look anywhere you know what are those people doing down there you know what's going on over here you know you watched something that was cinematic in yes. a, a 3d environment that you could actually move around in yes all right so and, this was, okay because i and, steve you were also saying and I, I have read about this extensively i know that you could do this that you could like watch a movie inside the video the headset like as if you were in yeah. a movie theater like a big yeah. screen movie theater yeah, they, they, there's that mode too. I downloaded the the uh, VR virtual desktop, and that's basically it's like a theater view, or it's just a hovering screen, and you're in the middle of a 360 degree space. But that's kind of gimmicky right now. That that's like a novelty. I think for like for productivity, not quite there yet. You know, there's no reason why I would use a virtual desktop. It, there's no real advantage to it at this point, and the res- you just have a downgrade in resolution. But for gaming, for that entertainment, said, that's Steve, that said, HTC Vive just showed it at CES their new their new upgrade. Yeah, and I know. It's like seventy eight percent, seventy eight percent more more pixels. So, uh, so the resolution might might have crossed that point at this point, or it's or might still be very very close. But it, yeah, I mean, it's just a no brainer. It will get there. It, you know, you'll have eight K goggles at some point, ten K. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, real and they're, they're working on eye tracking so they can have high definition where you're looking. Cause it doesn't have yeah, to like, be, a, like a fovea. Yeah, Excellent. exactly. That would be as so if I'm, I'm trying to read small text, it will come into focus. Uh, but yeah, but not that's not there yet. The other thing is like with the entertainment, it's like it's actually a new medium. So yeah, at first you'll just be watching movies in VR, but when they you know explore how to optimize the entertainment for VR, which they're already starting to do. Then, then it'll really take off. Like, for example, action can wait until you look at it, right? So there's another, ah, another of one of the, the games within the, which Bob, you, you experienced very quickly in the, the lab is just like a wizard's, uh, lair. And it's, that was that, excellent. Yeah. That's just a proof of concept. Not really anything going on yet. But like, for example, when you look up at the ceiling, there are bats hanging from the ceiling and they fly away when you look at them, no matter when you look at them. If you know, at, at some point when you're in there, if you look up at the ceiling, that's when they'll fly away. And there are like creatures in the lab that will follow you, that will look at you wherever you go, for example. So yeah, there's an interactive three dimensional immersive layer to the game or the entertainment that's off the hook and jay for educational purposes or 
vicarious, you know, just visiting places. Like, again, proof of concept types of things. You can visit Mount Everest. I've, I've stood on the top of Mount Everest, you know, in virtual reality. It's pretty damn good. You know, for that kind of stuff, the re- even with the resolution that they have now, it was a very, a very visceral experience, you know. So I think absolutely the sense that you are there is complete. That's it's, the thing. It's, yeah, it really it's, is complete. Do they have a program where you're standing on the surface of the moon yet and you're looking yes. out? Oh, I love it. I've stood on the surface of Mars. Nice. And you're on Mars. That's as close as we will ever, that we will get, guys, to being on yeah. the surface of Mars. <laughs> True. So, and it, but it's really like Mars. I mean, it's a real data. It's not like yeah, made up. Yeah, no, it's this real like pictures. Real, it's pictures. If you were yeah. there, this is how it would look. The thing is, to me, uh, this technology is like – it's like the high, high-end high phones. Um, say yeah. what? In the 90s, maybe in the early 90s where they were they were good phones. They were elaborate. They could do lots of stuff. But they were still kind of tethered to the desk. And on the cusp, on the verge of becoming you know portable phones and and then eventually Smart smartphones. Phone. Yeah, that's. I mean, this is this is where this is the progression. This is the start. But it's it you know it's there. I mean, it's worth. I mean, it's worth buying now. I think I'm seriously I, yeah, yeah. spending the money. I'm totally bucks I'm totally to get getting this. my money's worth out of this. Absolutely, it's it's above the waterline. It's totally there. Yeah, and. Every incremental improvement will make it a lot better. So it's, we're still on that steep part of the curve. A little bit more resolution, you'll notice it. It'll be great. A little bit more peripheral vision, it'll be fantastic. Uh, they're, the, they're coming out yeah. with wireless, so you don't have the, the wires are not that big a deal, but it'd be nice, you know, to get rid of them. That will make the experience a little bit better. So, so those are the keys, Steve, I think. Uh, for your five was fantastic. It needs a little bit more peripheral vision, like you said. It needs, it needs to be wireless. That, that you, we're probably going to see very, you know, the Next big thing, this and then year. Um, this year. and then uh, the resolution is already kind of there. The, the latest version is already out, and at least uh, it's being demonstrated. And then the only other thing is is portability. And, uh, yeah. and like I've said on the show before, I'm waiting for the point where it's like pretty much like glorified sunglasses that could do all of this: wrap around sunglasses, full peripheral f- uh, or augmented. That's to I me mean, that to me that's the end game. Or if you want to go a little right. farther and say like contacts, but that's I mean that's the track that they're on. And there's you know the, and those are all so doable. It's just a matter. Of this money, research, and a little time, we're going to see this stuff. You know, you know, in ten years, just imagine in ten years, it's going to, it's going to be it's going to be like smartphones at the, at that point. I think. yeah, I, I want to play the penetration. Yeah. I want to play City of Heroes, like a, yes. a, a superheroes <sighs> MMO yes. inside a virtual reality. That's yeah. that's it. That's the end game yeah. for me too. I agree. I was, yeah, because what? Because but the thing that I was showing Bob, where you're on the plank, you could fly around that virtual city. And while yeah, yeah. While, while I was doing that, I'm like, holy crap, this is City of Heroes. Totally, totally. Yes. My first comment. Yeah. yeah, makes sense. Yeah, it would Makes be. Oh, that would be incredible. Oh, the, the other critical thing that that will come is the tactile feedback. Like I was pressing yeah. a button on the bridge of the Enterprise, which is awesome, just being on the en- the bridge. <laughs> but I was saying, you know, if we just had some tactile glove so that you could. Feel when you hit that button, that would add a you know a whole new dimension because yeah. of course it's the haptic feedback. And that's but that's the other big thing. But there, it, there's so there's a little bit it vibrates, you know, whatever. That, that's all you need, just a little bit. A little yeah, bit. I'm saving up. I'm saving up to get the headset you have, Steve. Yeah, I would like it to to put like boots on, like or just ankle bracelets or well, something mm. for it to know where my feet are. So like if I want to kick something or if I'm walking. Like you could walk or run in place, and then your character would run because it knows where your feet are. That that yeah, would there, be doable. there are VR companies that have that now, but you have to have these. Like I've, I've done a few shoots with them. You basically have to have these posts 
around you. Like let's say a, if you're in the middle of a room, you've got four posts, almost like microphone stands that are really yeah. tall and they have these little like balls on the top and they're yeah. sensors. And then you can operate within that space. But until – like the space itself has to be mapped in order to know where well, you yeah, are relative to the That's what story. I had to do too. So I have yeah. two sensors. I just have two sensors at corners of my office. Yeah, and yeah, I, yeah. I had to oh, map – I didn't know that. Cool. I had to map the space – so it knows where to put the walls, so you know mm-hmm. where the obstacles are, and then yeah, it knows where I am in that space. It, it knows where my controllers are, which basically means it knows where my hands are. It knows where my head is because it knows where the, the the visor is. So just add feet, and then it pretty much can infer where I am. You know, yeah, add feet, and also maybe like weapons. I've I've done oh, like I a have, really could, cool thing. I have weapons. You oh, you have, have weapons. weapons. Okay, cool. Totally. So and it can see where they are in space. Yeah. Yeah, that's no, the awesome. thing is the controller could become a virtual weapon, you know. Gotcha, gotcha. And then yeah. it has a trigger. The controller awesome. has a trigger. But Kara is saying though, instead of you, you know, instead of holding the Vive controller, you, you can actually hold like get, a yeah, like some a type of blaster or a gun yeah. or something that it feels like has the shape of a different kind of weapon that is a controller. Well, so as again, well. The, the they'll do that eventually. The controller has a trigger. And it totally feels like you're holding a weapon. It does. It really yeah, does. It didn't, that's it cool. didn't matter. That Not two-handed. Weapon feels the same. Not but. two-handed, but it feels like you're, any pistol, any one-handed weapon, it's perfectly fine. Yeah, I'm two, sure that if people are really into yeah. certain games, you know, you get to a point where like you're so into Call of Duty that it's really important that you have like the the feel of your weapon, or you're really into a driving game and you really want a wheel. Like those things will come out. Yeah, Someone's going to develop or that. a guitar, yeah. whatever. Exactly. Yeah. There'll, yeah, be, yeah. there'll be accessories for all those kind of stuff. But to approximate it now is a good start. The fact it's that they fine. thought to do that, it's yeah, fine. that's cool. Right. And the games that they're making for VR are so much are so fantastic. You know, the, uh, the games that they're adapting to VR are still good, but you know, yeah, you could tell that this is not really optimized for it. Like I've been playing Fallout Four in VR, and it's fun. But Fallout 4 is not optimized for VR. But the, mm. even these, these cheesy little games that were made for VR are incredible, incredible. Fallout uh, 5. I'm yeah. sure that, they'll uh, yeah, have that ready for VR, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, so I think we're just crossing that waterline, you know, where there's a, where the technology's there, the I think interest is there, and the software is starting to come out. Because it's always a chicken and egg thing. Like, you need the applications for people to want to get the hardware, but people need to have the hardware for, people, for the companies to invest in the software. You know, it has to sort of bootstrap itself up, but I think we're there. And now I'm hoping that, like, the software is going to really explode, and then everyone's going to need to get the VR headset. It's already kind of happening, like, even among our group, right? Like, we got... I downloaded the the Star Trek Bridge Crew, and yep. my God, guys, that is is that is like our life stream. We are on the bridge of a <laughs> Starfleet ship, heading that. to SETI Alpha. Six. I got to tell you that the, the intro, you're in a shuttle and you're you're like just sort of circling around the ship, and it's not a Constitution class. It's it's an Aegis class starship, but it's it's actually better than a Constitution class. It's gorgeous. It's freaking gorgeous, and that is also a total because it fills your entire visual field. You know, it's like you're in orbit around the Earth, circling around this beautiful ship, and you're there, and it's awesome. And then when you're <laughs> on the bridge, and you know, you have like your controllers look like hands, and you, when you pull the trigger, it's like you're moving your fingers, and you're actually pushing buttons on a on a you know, a console and spotted hands in Jay's case. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so anyway, that yeah. kind of, that's the kind of application that's going to make people want to get VR. And then the more people get VR, the more awesome applications are going to come out. 
Yeah, I, I'm, I think I'll have it soon, Steve. I mean, I, I just yeah. got to bend reality to make it happen. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Soon. So we'll keep you updated on on the VR experience. <laughs> but so far, so far, two thumbs up. It's awesome. Okay. Kara, get us started with what's the word? Absolutely. So the word this week was recommended by Ben Allison from New York. Um, I love this word mostly because – I really learned something new, like really learned something new when this word was recommended because I had never used it, but I know I had come across it before. So the word this week is eutrophication, E-U-T-R-O-P-H-I-C-A-T-I-O-N, eutrophication. And eutrophication is an interesting phenomenon wherein a lot of chemical nutrients, mostly nitrogen or phosphorus or some combination of both of those – (laughs) Um, end up in an ecosystem, usually a a liquid ecosystem. So think about a lake. This is a pretty natural process that occurs in lakes as lakes age through geological time. So there's stuff that lives in it. There's stuff that lives near it. That stuff dies and decays and all of the bacteria from the decaying matter ends up in that lake. And over time, the nutritional content, um, especially with that nitrogen and phosphorus, builds up and builds up and builds up. Unfortunately, that process is massively accelerated by inorganic um, compounds that are like – that run off, usually from agriculture, from development, from pollution, things like detergents and, um, and pesticides and things like that. And what ends up happening is that these nutrients cause certain organisms like phytoplankton, algae to bloom. It causes them to develop really rapidly and grow and grow and grow. And that chokes off oxygen to lower levels of the lake. So you've got all this life existing on the surface because there's all this great nutritional content and no light can pass through. And so the lake actually dies. And this is responsible for a lot of the quote unquote dead zones that we read about in the ocean. Mm -hmm. These algae blooms are usually um, secondary to this process of eutrophication. So I read up a little bit about the different types of – the different terms that are used here, uh, the different bands, I guess. There's uh, dystrophic, meaning that there's like no nutrients, very little. There's oligotrophic, meaning that there's um, a little amount – yeah, a few. Mm-hmm. Mesotrophic, um, right there in the middle. Eutrophic means that there's a lot of nutrition. And then hypertrophic is, um, it's, yeah, but eutrophic right. actually is too much too. So, um, in the Wikipedia article, it even does say precisely hypertrophication, although it does seem like eutrophication is the term that is most often used, um, in the scientific literature and also in, the media. So this term was actually coined by George Heinrich Weber, spelled Weber, but I'm sure it's Weber because it's German. I'm not sure, but I'm assuming. In 1946. And the word actually is a direct translation from the Greek, which really means exactly what it is, well-nourished. That root, which was mentioned by Ben Allison, who wrote this in, said he's super interested in the root you, as in eugenics or eukaryote, which seems to have a broad range of uses. But the truth of the matter is that uh, word-forming element means good, 
Mm-hmm. And so um, okay. almost any time that you see it, the original usage was um, some form of that good nutrition, for example, or like you said, um, eugenics, unfortunately, at the time, that was what they meant by that word. Good genes. Yeah, we won't get too deep into yeah. that. <laughs> but okay. yeah, they did that. That's why they used that that word forming um, the prefix at the beginning. So yeah, it's, an, it's a really interesting term because it's really, I think, relevant for a lot of what we talk about on the show, a lot of trending news items about climate change and about um, acidification in the ocean, but about specifically these algae blooms. And I guess I didn't fully understand that full um, phosphorus cycle, that full cycle wherein there's actually more nutrition, which leads to a choking off or like a hypoxic environment in which organisms can't grow because they're not getting enough light and they're also not getting enough oxygen. And that's – yeah, there's a big problem with that in the Gulf of Mexico because of agricultural runoff mm-hmm. you know, through the Mississippi and uh, a lot of it just ends up in the, uh, in the Gulf and then you get the algae bloom and then the dead zone. Yep. And we've seen this, I think, historically in certain lakes. Um, we, we started really learning about this uh, several decades ago and have been able to – affect change in certain lake ecosystems to try to save those lakes when we first realized that they were really suffering. That's why we need to genetically modify crops to fix their own nitrogen from the atmosphere so we don't have to use as much nitrogen fertilizer. Yeah, That would be great. Mm -hmm. That would solve that problem. All right. Thanks, Kara. Mm -hmm. Jay, so I understand that another astronaut has passed away this past week. Yeah, that's right. So NASA's longest-serving astronaut, John Young, died on January 5th at the age of 87. I think he um, succumbed to pneumonia. But what a life. What a life John Young had. Uh, He flew two Gemini missions, two Apollo missions, and two space shuttle missions. Uh, So the two Apollo missions he flew both went to the moon, and he was one of the first three astronauts um, to fly two moon missions. Or actually, there was only three astronauts that ever did fly two moon missions, and he was one of them. And he was the ninth person to walk on the moon, and he got to spend over 20 hours moonwalking. And Bob, just so wow. you know, that's a, that's a lot more than Michael Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> so Young logged in a total of 34 days in space, and by today's standards, right, because of the International Space Station, you yeah. might not that might not seem like a lot. But keep in mind, he was traveling in some of the most cramped, horrible quarters that you could ever imagine, you know, ever want to even pilot. The space station today is, is palatial compared to the Gemini capsules, right? I mean, think about it. I mean, they, there's a lot of areas in the, in the space station where you could, you know, do somersaults and do all sorts of maneuvers. And, you know, they have actually have real space in there where you don't feel so claustrophobic. But Young piloted the, the very first Gemini missions along with Gus Grissom, and those capsules were tiny. I mean, you're in there with another person. You're on almost on top of each other. Yeah, you could see them at the Air and Space Museum. You look inside like, oh my goodness, there were yeah. people crammed in there for days. Yeah, yes. like you're in a, yeah. a chair shaped like your body and there's a person sitting a foot and a half to your left in, in you know, a mirror version of what you're in and like there is like no place to go. You just have the yeah. front of that capsule in front of you and that's it. So did you guys know that John uh, actually was the astronaut that smuggled the corned beef sandwich aboard the Gemini 3. Oh, he's the corned yeah. beef yep. sandwich That's awesome. yeah. astronaut. I forgot he about just that. pulled it out and started eating it when he was up in space. <laughs> I love that. To awesome. Be, like the balls, right? Like, oh, my God. He really like, yep, I'm bringing this with me. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was, 
kind of, at least they, they sell it that like that was kind of the culture of the astronauts, especially in the early days. That they were mavericks. Yeah, like test right? pi- yeah they were like yeah. test pilots, man. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Most of them came up as test pilots. You know, and all of the astronauts were heavily educated, very intelligent, you know, very, very accomplished even before they became astronauts. So Young was the first astronaut to orbit the moon alone, and this was on the Apollo 10 mission. He walked on the moon, like I said, for Apollo 16, and during that mission, he lived on the moon in the Orion lunar module for close to three days. It was almost three full days. And he also drove the lunar rover on the moon, and he collected 211 pounds or 96 kilograms of moon rock that they brought back to the Earth. And think about that. I mean, he actually drove a vehicle on another, another body, another celestial yes. body, <laughs> and he lived there. He woke up on the moon. He had a night of sleep, woke up on the moon. Wow. That's amazing. Yep. I never really thought of that. That's still cool. amazing to think about. And during that mission, he, NASA told him that the government had decided to create the space shuttle. So he heard about the space shuttle money being approved while he was actually on the moon, which I think is really, really cool. And by coincidence, nine years later, in 1981, Young would command the flight of the very first space shuttle mission aboard Space Shuttle Columbia. Yep. Columbia, number one. Yep. Yeah. Um, he he worked for NASA for 42 years. And behind the scenes, he had, of course, also many other positions. You know, he, he spent a lot of his early years being an astronaut. But then while he was an astronaut and then for the second half of his career, he was a very highly influential uh, person working behind the scenes at, at NASA doing a lot of different things. And in 2005, he won the NASA Ambassador of Exploration Award. I, I, I look up to, to people like this. I really do. I mean, I, their nerve alone is something to marvel at. The fact that they can do these things and, and not freak out and be able to keep their cool under extraordinary circumstances. Like these, these are James Bond level and Captain Kirk level cool heads. You know what I mean? And yeah. even the, the, you know, Steve, I think is the most cool person I know. And I question if, if Steve's level of cool could take going into outer space. Not, not, no, any- I agree. I totally agree. I mean, uh, I'd like to think that I'd be able to do that and maybe I'd be able to, to muscle through, but I can't guarantee it. Like, I don't know if I would freak out being cramped up in, in a capsule like that for extended periods of time. I've never been tested in that way. Um, I know I got claustrophobic when I went into an MRI scanner. Yep. I got through it though. You know, I just you know closed my eyes. I could do it. Close your eyes. But uh, yeah, I don't think you can keep your eyes closed during a launch. No, not not. I I don't think that's allowed. I get stir crazy during a like a bad winter storm. I'm cramped in my house for a couple of days. I get stir crazy. VR baby. Yeah, (laughs) solves everything. But that's why you know when you see movies um, like the right stuff, you see a little bit of how they. they test their claustrophobia and their ability to deal with loud noises and cramped conditions yeah. and weird weird things. I mean, they're they're putting the astronauts through their paces. And, and John Young, man, I mean, this guy, he was he was. They called him the astronauts astronaut. Mm-hmm. He was an example for other astronauts. He was like the person that they said you got to be like him in he order was to the do template. this. Yep. Yeah. Mm. So, so I, twelve people have walked on the moon. And now with the passing of John Young, there's only five left. It's only five living people who have wow. been on the moon. They're all in their 80s, and it's not going to be too long before there's going to be no one alive who walked on the moon. That's sad. Yeah. Uh, until the new crop of moonwalkers yeah. comes mm-hmm. along, hopefully soon. 
So I have a cool quote here from John Young. John said, anyone who sits on top of the largest hydrogen-oxygen-fueled system in the world, knowing they're going to light the bottom and doesn't get a little worried, does not fully understand the situation. (laughs) (laughs) He said that when he was asked if he was worried about making the first space shuttle flight. Um, So, you know, that, that, that funny comment that he said came at, you know, one of the last missions that he flew. Um, ladies and gentlemen, John Young, thank you. Thank you for yeah. dedicating your life to space exploration and being an eternal badass, awesome, you know, overachiever. Like, we, I, yeah. I, I, I love, love the fact that at one point in the history of the country that I was brought up in, that we, we looked up to people like this. Like this, the, These were the things that kids looked at and said, yes, I want to be like those guys, you know. They are rock stars. I agree. Absolutely. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, Lisa Mattresses. So, guys, Lisa Mattresses are direct-to-consumer mattresses. You can buy them right online, and they're also really socially conscious. I love this. For every 10 mattresses that they sell, they donate one to a shelter through their 110 program. And they also plant a tree for every mattress sold and donate 1% of each employee's time to volunteer for local causes. So the deal with the mattresses, they've got a two-inch Avena foam top layer for cooling and breathability. Then they've got a two-inch memory foam middle layer for body contouring and pressure relief. And then there's a six-inch dense core support foam for durability and structure, uh, which works for sleepers of all sizes. Make it so I can plug my phone into the mattress and it'll be perfect. <laughs> Lisa also has a Lisa pillow, a blanket, and a foundation, and a frame that you could buy with your mattress. We want you to try a Lisa mattress in your own home 100 nights risk-free. It is available in the United States, United Kingdom, Canada, and Germany online. You get free shipping. And it's 100% American made. And it ships compressed into a box right to your front door. Or you can try it yourself at the Lisa Dream Gallery in Soho, New York, and Virginia Beach, and over 80 West Elm stores nationwide. So get $100 off when you go to leesa.com slash skeptics. All right, guys, let's get back to our show. But there's some other space flight news going on this week. Bob, tell us about SpaceX's latest launch. Yeah, oof, baby. Uh, so uh, this past January 8th, SpaceX launched a classified military satellite made by a defense contractor north of Grumman. Uh, unfortunately, the mission failed, and the exact cause is actually – Bit of a mystery, which is kind of odd because typically they're like, you know, pretty quickly these days. They don't, yep, okay, this messed up, whatever. This one is definitely uh, a horse of a different color. So uh, these failures are so selfishly disappointing to me because every time this happens, I think, oh, well, me walking on the moon just got delayed again. So uh, this was called uh, – this this satellite was called Zuma after the Southern California Malibu Beach. Uh, but uh, I don't like Zuma. Um, sounds too much like that, like Zima to me. Remember Zima? Oh, the guys? drink, yeah, yeah, the alcoholic drink. So, so this was a billion dollar spy satellite. Now, imagine it just kills me. A billion dollars. Imagine spending months or probably years building this billion dollar piece of awesome classified hardware, only to lose it in in just a, in an hour, just after it reaches orbit. I mean, I would just totally cry. These people must be devastated. Whose fault was it, Bob? 
Ah, uh, oh yeah, that's coming, babe. That's coming. Don't don't ask me mm-hmm. to jump the gun. So the launch from Florida's Cape Canaveral seemed uh, to go very well. I mean, the first stage uh, went up and and uh, it um, separated and the and then it landed back. Right, we've seen the first stage uh, land before. Right, it just comes right back down like old school uh, rockets from the fifties. I just love that. So that was a that was such a cool video I saw at night, having this huge ball of light not take off, but you know take off and then come down. Very cool. And the broadcast of the second stage ended, though, just prior to separation. Now, that that doesn't prove some false flag Alex Jones ridiculous conspiracy. That's actually routine for classified military launches. They they don't want to... They don't want anyone to know, like you know, what the what the orbit is or anything about it. So they so after pretty much after the first stage, you really don't see or hear anything about what happens. So what happened then is um is understandably much more difficult because uh, for us to find out what happened with a classified launch is a lot is a lot harder. Now some experts initially were claiming that the satellite was dead in orbit that it was in orbit but it was dead. Then Bloomberg News report offered uh, that the mission failed following a, ma- a malfunction in the latter stages of its ascent. Uh, then we had uh, Wall Street Journal reporting that, the go- that government officials said Zuma failed because it didn't separate as planned from the upper part of the rocket. That act- that might be it right there. Uh, Space- SpaceX, though, were saying things like this. They said, reviews of the data indicate Falcon 9 performed nominally, which means good normally. Then they further said that they did everything correctly. You know, obviously just saying we we did nothing wrong. Everything went fine for our stuff. President uh, Gwyn Shotwell said in a statement. Uh, Shotwell? 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 S-H-O-T. That, that's like a cartoon name for somebody involved in spaceflight. All <laughs> <laughs> right. Yosemite Sam's counterpart. <laughs> Shotwell. Um, so uh, yeah. Gwyn Shotwell said, and this is president of SpaceX, she said in a statement, the data reviewed so far indicates that no design, operational, or other changes are needed, which makes sense because if you have a launch and something goes wrong, they, they you see what the error, what the problem was, then there's clearly something that you need to redesign or whatever. You got to make a change so that it doesn't happen again. So she was saying that none of there's no information pointing to anything that they could they could have done any better uh, later she said for clarity after review of all data to date falcon 9 did everything correctly on sunday night so clearly um she was getting she seemed to be getting a little pissed about people speculating that they screwed up um then she said that information contrary to this statement is categorically false so uh, at this point i was thinking you know damn maybe they did screw up you know it's like the, the rocket didn't put the satellite in orbit i mean you probably did something wrong so uh then i just kept, then of course i did more research and uh then we had a u.s official confirming to abc news that the satellite ended up diving into the indian ocean so and th- so that's pretty much where we are on january on january 10th so what are the options here let's go what are the options so spacex is either lying their asses off which they would not do i'm sorry they just you know you wouldn't they would not well, the other wait, option- Bob, hold on i agree with you slow down there sporty. okay <laughs> i agree with you because spacex historically has been a uh, non-averse to failure. Oh, remember, yeah. Remember that whole thing? I think yeah, that's kind of their philosophy. Yeah. yeah. Failure's right. okay. We'll learn from it. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. But, I mean, when you got a billion-dollar satellite, you know, you could change your tune. But even then, I think they would absolutely fess up. So I don't think they're lying. For me, that's off That's off the table. The other option is that SpaceX, they did screw up in some way, but but no information that their systems delivered to them 
pointed to that screw up. So, so, but I don't think that's, that happened either. I don't think that happened either. The one, the thing that I think is ha- happening here is that there's been speculation and, and, and the Wall Street Journal hinted at it. There's been speculation of a possible failure of the adapter that was made by Northrop Grumman that connected the satellite to the upper stage of the rocket. And that to me, from everything that I know, that seems to be the most viable option, the most likely option, because it, that was their responsibility. That adapter was Northrop Grumman. They, they designed it and they connected their satellite to the upper stage. And what that's, does Northrop Grumman say about that? They, they, well, they, they can't comment. This is they a say, yeah, we, we don't comment classified. on classified we, missions. Right. Isn't that and convenient? It, mm-hmm. And no, well, I mean, well, yeah, they, but that's how it has to be. Hey, I think, yeah, otherwise, I think it's not a classified mission. Yeah, I think, I think it, th- that type of thing, you know, I think will come out eventually. So, yeah, so that, that's that's their domain, and that's why SpaceX was saying everything, all of our shit was good, and it seems that that it was, and it's and because that was their domain. That SpaceX had everything up until the top of that that top space, the the um the uh, the second stage rocket. It was all them. But everything above that, including the adapter and the satellite, that was all Northrop Grumman. So it seems like the adapter uh, could be could be the culprit here, and that's what I would lay my money on. But also remember, don't forget, this is a high tech classified military satellite. I think that it's possible that the satellite's neogenic laser grid deteriorated the tachyon filament, causing a catastrophic thoron dump. I'm just throwing that out there. Mm-hmm. Just throwing that out there. Mm-hmm. That's possible. Bob, you no, know Bob, what I thought? Bob, it's clearly an axion field failure. I mean, let's not go crazy here. <laughs> Bob, I thought that the alluvial dampeners satellite did get up there, and, there, and it's possible they're saying it didn't. It's like, a cover? Yeah. yeah. Uh, oh, no. <laughs> no, seriously. Could, I mean, I wouldn't put that past reality. It's, it's not like a ridiculous idea. They're like, oh, yeah, it failed. Yeah, sounds good. Go with it. Yeah, you know, the billion-dollar... Government Spy satellite, satellite didn't get yeah. launched, and that's a conspiracy. I've got major companies in on this conspiracy at that point, Jay. It's okay. all it's defense contracting. You know, that's yeah. they're sworn to secrecy. Yeah, I think it's probably it. not the case, but, but it contradicts not. what SpaceX is saying. So. Yeah, I mean, you can't completely rule that out at this point. But yeah, SpaceX is saying our shit worked, and we can't say anything else because it's classified. That's all they're saying. Um, but by the way, so the uh, Falcon Heavy rocket is set <laughs> yeah, to. This week. Do a test launch later this month. They're, oh my god! They're going to do like a demonstration launch, and they're 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 just about ready as we're recording this to do a test fire of all of their engines. I was hoping it was going to be yeah, I was hoping it was going to be the, today, but it turns out it's going to be tomorrow at the earliest that they're going to ah, do that. So, yeah. So, but before this, this podcast comes out, they probably will have done the test firing. If that goes well, then they're going to actually launch the thing. Um, and this is a you rocket guys that's come here for it's the big launch. enough. It's big enough to to uh, go to Mars. This this rocket. Are they launching it out of the same place that they always do their launches? Yeah, they're thirty nine A Pad thirty nine A Kennedy. It's Kennedy. Pad thirty nine A the Kennedy Florida. Space Center in Florida. Not for the heavy. Not for the. That's Falcon for the heavy. heavy. I see. Yeah. yeah, they have to do it up there. That's the that's same the pad that they were launching the shuttle off of, and it's the same mm-hmm. pad they launched the Atlas. Saturn Five. The Saturn Five off. Saturn Five. Yeah. Finally, how many it's decades we finally got one. a contender for Saturn yeah. Five and heir to the Saturn Five? Jeez. Uh, the uh, the Falcon Heavy is twice as powerful as the next biggest. Rocket in the world in service today. 
Yes. Yeah. So what is now? I know this is uh, this is like very upgradable. When what this version that they're that they're at right now with the twenty seven Merlin engines, what is that in comparison to uh, to the Saturn V? I think it's so consistent with the promise of a super heavy lift vehicle. SpaceX's original specification indicated a project predicted payload. Oh Jesus! Of fifty three thousand kilograms to low Earth orbit. Saturn V was two hundred sixty one thousand. I mean one hundred eighteen thousand kilograms to low Earth orbit. So it's. 54,000 kilograms versus a 118,000. Yes, a little bit more than twice. Um, yeah, twice. For twice, the Saturn V. Saturn V was way overbuilt. You know, it was built. Wow. Go, it was a- built to go to Mars, even though we only used oh. it to go to the moon. I'm looking at a little video of the Saturn V right next to the to the heavy lift. Damn, the Saturn V was big. That wow, yeah. it dwarfs it dwarfs the so, Falcon. That's so amazing. The Falcon Heavy. Wow. Steve, do you remember Jay? You were there too. Do you remember when we saw yeah. uh, a Saturn V on its side and we're staring at its engines? Was like the, its five engines. To, yeah. That to me that to me that was like looking at at the statue of David in uh, in Italy. That was just like yeah. my jaw dropped. My jaw dropped. It was like you, you pictures cannot do that rocket justice. But when you walk in the room. It's weird to be standing so close to to an object that big that is that complicated, and it, it is it consumes you, right? It, you just be, yeah. you get like blown away by it because you're like this thing was standing up and and went into outer space. Like look at the size of that, you know? It, it was it's a marvel. It really is like a titan. It's bigger than the titan, actually. <laughs> titan was a different different <laughs> rocket. All right, let's Ginormous. move on. So, have you guys heard about the latest health trend? Uh-oh. Raw water? Health trend. Raw Those two words water. don't go well together. Water. Raw water. I know. Uncooked. Wow. <laughs> uncooked water. Uh, uncooked? Huh? <laughs> so, this is, to me, this Raw. is just crass marketing, you know, of course. This is just another form of snake oil. Water snake oil is very common. Um, you know, a lot of people essentially market either magic water, you know, like... Oxygen water. Eh, oh, it? yeah, you're right. Or like clustered water or alkaline water. Was... Or the or the like natural water, right? Yes, like no, pure like water. There's no fluoride or whatever. And so it's very, very common. A lot of water woo out there. And this is another form of – this is the natural water. It's raw. It hasn't – it's unfiltered, untreated, unsterilized spring water. So it's loaded with, you know, good Giardia. stuff. Like, yeah, Giardia. <laughs> Arsenic. And bacteria and E. Deer coli. Pee. <laughs> Deer pee. Yeah. So it's like, okay, yeah, we're going to take crappy water and then we're going to sell it for thirty six ninety nine. What? For 2.5 gallons. Wait, 36 no. cents? Yeah. No, $36. What the hell? And that's more, like more expensive than oil. Yeah, I know. Yes, crazy. That's crazy. Yes, and they even insane. say they even say that. Um, yeah, like you know, if you don't use it within a couple of weeks, it'll turn green. Well, yeah, because it's full of algae, <gasps> which is natural. Which is natural, by the way. Oh, yeah, so it must be good for. I don't want to drink water that's going to turn green. I mean, is, is, is there <laughs> except on St. Patrick's Day. Yeah, absolutely, sure, that's yes. dangerous. Sure. It's like the raw milk thing. You know, there's a reason why we pasteurize milk is to kill all the bacteria that are going to cause infections. Yeah, that was like a marvel of science and it like prevented so many deaths. Right? I just people <laughs> need to get in a time machine and go back to what it was like before we had all the perks that we have now cuz right. it's right. all a function of convenience. They could just get in a plane and go to another country. Exactly. <laughs> they could just go to Africa. Yeah. 
Exactly. I travel when I travel. I carry a Steri pen with me because I do. I go to developing countries a lot, and I am scared to drink the water because I don't want to get parasites. So this is such why would a, I do that in my own country? A privileged first world nonsense. When you think that there's a lot uh, of people in the world who uh, don't have potable water, don't have clean water to drink, and and now you know some jackass is going to charge yeah. you know rich yeah. Americans extra money to drink unfiltered, unpurified water. You know, as isn't, if it, there's something advantage to it? Isn't this a little bit self-correcting, though? Don't you don't you think that people are going to get sick? Some some could even die, and then we're going to be like, well, okay, no one's going to buy this crap anymore. Or are they or are they going to be like kind of making sure it's not that bad so that doesn't happen? Well, it's who, probably who not like toilet water, right? They're probably pulling it from a semi clean. Oh God, they're probably not even testing unfiltered, it untreated, yeah. unsterilized spring water. Yeah. So a spring just right out of the top of the spring. It could have God knows what in it. Right. You don't where, want to kill the water. You're going to kill its vital essence, Kara. <laughs> Wait, where, where is there a spring in the United States that isn't full of horrible, toxic garbage that yeah. we've dumped into it? Oh, there's probably some Yikes. mountain spring water where it's you know it's pretty Yeah, like melted glaciers. We've got yeah. plenty of those. But whatever. I mean, I do think this is a fad and, and it will probably just go to the fringe. These things rarely go away entirely. But it'll just persist on the fringe. And, you know, just one more way just to charge people a lot of money to do stupid things to hurt themselves. Yeah. But, yeah, there is a chance, Bob. Like you said, there's a chance somebody's going to get very, very sick from this. Sure. It's very scary. People get sick from raw milk. It doesn't stop that from existing on the fringe. Drink it within one lunar cycle for super freshness. (laughs) What? One lunar Lunar cycle. (laughs) Mysticism of the stars now. Douchiest thing I've ever heard. Oh 100% my marketing. Yeah. I'm going to start crap. using that t- phrase all the time now. <laughs> lunar cycle. Within one lunar cycle, you'll be feeling much better. Right. Oh my God. What hippie nonsense. Yeah. Oh, it's one, so LA. Within one revolution of Mercury. <laughs> Ugh. Oh, wait. Can't use the word Mercury. Oh, well. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, there's no Mercury. <laughs> let's move on. Evan, this yeah. is. This is an interesting story about human Wi-Fi. I think this is just silly reporting, but what's what's going on well, here? Yeah, it caught my attention. I stopped to read it. It appeared in the Telegraph a few days ago. And the title of the piece is called How Wi-Fi Connects Human Brains and Explains Why People Have Gut Feelings. What? Yes. Pe- people didn't have gut feelings before Wi-Fi. <laughs> Apparently not. Uh, or they, did, they didn't know how it, exactly how it worked, but now... Wi-Fi's in quotes. It's like a metaphor. Right? Okay. Yes, that is true. Oh, okay, is okay, true. okay. So uh, his name is Digby Tantum. He is a clinical professor of psychotherapy Digby. at the University of Sheffield, I say. And he believes human brains oh, are... Can you get more British? Professor Digby Tantum from University of Sheffield. Natural service. <laughs> On His Majesty's (laughs) Secret Service. And he believes human brains are interconnected through a type of, in quotes, Wi-Fi, which allows us to pick up far more information about other people than we are aware of. Hmm. He describes the phenomenon as the interbrain and outlines his hypothesis in a brand new book of the same name. So he's selling a book. Called the yeah. interbrain. Wait, is he just talking about instinct? Yes. Yeah. Not even right. It's just <laughs> or like the, perception. It's just perception. It's just yeah. We <laughs> we perceive other people's emotions. Yeah. No shit. <laughs> yeah. Even when they don't know that they're expressing them. Yeah. Ugh, but he's putting Jesus. some sort of mechanism to it, uh, reported with As no with no science have done to back that it before. up. But, I don't oh think he's gosh. even doing that, Evan. I think what this guy's doing 
is he's taking just the normal psychology of nonverbal communication, which mm-hmm. is nothing new, nothing nope. controversial, nothing supernatural, nothing And totally scientifically described. Totally scientifically described. And he's just repackaging this idea with these you know, new metaphors and inventing a term for it that does adds nothing to it. It adds no concept, n- no understanding. It doesn't dig deeper. It doesn't expand our – you know, understanding of it phenomenologically. It's just, he's just slapping a weird name on old <laughs> known psychological phenomena. You know what it adds to it? It adds his speaker fee to yeah, it. Yeah, that's yes. right. That's what he's that's doing. It. Do you remember that uh, Simpsons episode where Homer's learning about the yes. internet and wants to create yeah. an internet company? Interslice. Interslice. <laughs> that's what I thought of when I read Interbrain, eh? <laughs> now, wait a minute, but according to PubMed, there is something called the Interbrain. It's an actual thing. Or more... Well, in medical terms, it's the uh, diencephalon. You ever heard of that? Diencephalon. Oh, the midbrain. Right. The yeah. centrally located is surrounded by other pieces. It includes the thalamus, hypothalamus, and yeah, but he's just he, He's using that right. term. He thinks he made it up, but he's just using it in a different way. So that's – to me, that's a red flag of a uh, what a crank does. They borrow these yeah, scientific jargons and sort of co-opt them for their own. Oh, I'm bummed out that he's an actual clinical psychologist too. Oh, he is. Why are you making us look bad? Ugh. I, he's just trying to, yeah, just repackaging stuff for to make it pop. You know, it's a bummer. Like, what's what's the actual concept here? What's he actually saying? You know, when you dig yeah. down, yeah. it's just nonverbal communication. Oh, big F- BFD. That's it. <laughs> right. I, I, that's that's all I got from it. He haven't talked. He's talked about it before. He's written a few books. It's not his first book. Yeah. Um, he, and but the thing, the, the the real disappointing thing is how the the media just runs with it. You know, it's like, oh, this this new thing about you know how this you know Wi-Fi connects be our brains together. No, do people think that actual Wi-Fi is just like like internet juice that's like in the air? <laughs> internet juice. <laughs> like, you tap into like it. it like existed before we came along, and now we just use it to our advantage. It's, like like how is the Wi-Fi ether. metaphor? Yeah. At all relevant here. Uh, it's so people can wrap their brains around a concept that otherwise, you know, no, needs to be repackaged. No, but it's an easy concept. It's such an easy concept I, to understand without the Wi-Fi metaphor. Right. The, the metaphor detracts from understanding. <laughs> it does. It doesn't add anything. It actually makes it less clear. Except clicks. Except clicks. Uh, yeah. There you go, Bob. Here we go. Here's a quote. Tantum writes. I have proposed that our brains are directly influenced by other brains through the to-and-fro traffic of nonverbal communication that passes between one person and another, but outside their conscious awareness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Examples of this are that we turn our gaze on what other people are looking at without realizing it, and our facial expressions mirror those of other people around us, lending a kind of emotional cognition or empathy. If this interbrain hypothesis is correct, and I obviously think it is, then our brains act and react to other brains well before each brain can provide the substrate for a mind to call into doubt whether or not the other brain is there. Well, that makes sense. <laughs> you know I what I think it. his problem is? I think he's probably a dualist. Uh, and he legit thinks that like the brain architecture, like the physical brain something out, is like right. putting out brain juices that the next brain is receiving. Like, I don't, I don't even, think he I don't think he even need to hypothesize that. It's crazy. like obviously like our brains are behind our behavior and then we behave and then another person 
experiences our behavior and then their brain reacts to that. Like yeah. that has been known for hundreds of years. Yeah, it's called vision. You know, we <laughs> see other people and we respond. I mean, seriously, what's the guy My talking about? My dog does that. Yeah, like if I point across the room to where his ball went, he looks where I pointed and goes and gets his ball. Yeah. He seems to and my brain is not Wi-Fiing with my dog's brain. He seems to tie it into uh the autism spectrum disorder in the sense that he's studied that as apparently extensively and he makes comparisons of brains that are deemed to be autistic versus the other brains out there and he sees these disconnects basically in the people who have these autism features and makes his Decisions are he. It influences how he perceives all other brains working based on how the autistic brain is working. In again, in nothing this. new. Yeah. We know nope. that people with autism don't respond as much to sub, you know, to to, uh, to social cues. social social cues. Yeah, and to nonverbal yeah. communication. That's that's their impairment. Their brains don't talk to themselves as much. You know, they just they don't mirror what other people do as much as uh, mm-hmm. uh, typical people do. So. This is nothing new. He's just repackaging other people's science with his own sort of terminology. And it's, I don't see, and it, using metaphors that actually detract from our ability to understand what's really going on. My Make, head is literally cradled in my hands right now. Yeah, I'm so annoyed by that. It's horrible science communication. This is horrible yeah, science horrible communication. Science it's communication. bad. You're, Jesus. It's your my, my gut brain, though, is telling me that you're feeling <laughs> something. <laughs> Up, down, all the way down in my gutty woodies. <laughs> Clockwork Orange, thank you. Right, so now we're going to end with some good news. Good yeah. news, news to everyone. Kara, cancer deaths continue to decline. Yes, yes. So um, I've been reading about this, and then um, you actually wrote about this, right? In Science Based yeah, Medicine. About it today, yeah. um, today, which is great. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a new study, I guess, kind of not a study, but a new, what would you call it's it? Study. It's a study. It's yeah, a study. Okay. It's, right. it's a they survey brought together all the information that that exists about the epidemiology of cancer. There you go. Incident and it was study. published yeah. in um <laughs> in CA. It's the American CA? the American <laughs> the Journal of the American Cancer Society. Yeah. yeah, so it's it's called CA, a cancer yeah. journal for clinicians. I don't know if you're supposed to call it CA or CA. No, CA is like CA. Okay, our, it's like our shorthand for cancer. Gotcha. Yeah. Cool, yeah. cool, cool, cool. Um, and yeah, so the study is called Cancer Statistics 2018, and really what what the researchers in this did is exactly what you said: looked at cancer data, epidemiological data uh, across several several years, and so going back all the way to I think 1991. Up to 2015, and then they have predictions um, looking forward in 2018. So the top line here, and then we can talk about like why these are the top lines or kind of dig a little deeper into the numbers as, as to what they mean, is that from 91 to 2015, the death rate from cancer dropped about 1.5% per year, resulting in a total decrease between 1991 and 2015 of 26%. So that's estimated at... 2,378,600 fewer deaths than would have occurred at the end of that um, span in 2015 if the death rate had not changed at all, if it had stayed at its peak. So yeah. that's a really good sign. Yeah. And now some of that is somewhat artifactual, but most of that is due to 
increase in treatment, increase in early prevention. So new cases of cancer, it, it varies from, from men to women. Men and women get different types of cancer. Not surprisingly, the top type in men is prostate cancer. Women don't have a prostate, so we don't get that. And the top type in females is breast cancer. Men do have breasts and can get breast cancer, but it's not nearly as common. Number two for both of them is lung cancer or um, lung and bronchial cancer. Number three for both males and females is colon and rectum. Number four is actually quite similar. In men, it's urinary and bladder cancer. And in uh, women, it's uh, uterine cancer. And then it goes on from there, thyroid, melanoma, and they vary. Um, but those are the top causes or um, cases, I'm sorry. But deaths, what do you think is the most common type of cancer that kills you in both men and women? Lung cancer? Um. Lung cancer. Is lung? it? Both yeah. men and women. Okay. And that's kind of different because historically more men died from lung cancer than women. But now it's it kills – it still kills less women per year. But percentage-wise, it kills um, – 25% of cancer deaths in women are lung and bronchus and 26% of cancer deaths in men are lung and lung and bronchus and then it goes to prostate and breast yeah. colon and rectum and then number four um leading cause of death uh cancer deaths is pancreas cancer yikes and yeah, so lung, lung cancer is a is going down and right because absolutely of the, mm -hmm. and that that Tobacco is part use. of the reason that all cancer has gone down lung cancer is terrible and lung cancer has gone down and why do you think lung cancer has gone down so no, I mean, many people are smoking it as much. Massive decrease in the number of smokers. Tobacco use was at 42% in the 1960s, and it's down to 17%. Wow. Yeah, that's a massive decrease. And, of course, these numbers – in the U.S. And yeah. these numbers in the study are from 91 to 2015. But yeah. still, there was, a, there was a big decrease between those years. So that's one thing. The prostate cancer screening issue is a little more complicated. Steve, do you mind kind of helping me make sense of that? Yeah. So uh, in the 1990s, they introduced a prostate-specific antigen, PSA, which is a blood test which screens for prostate cancer. And so when they did that, we had a huge spike in prostate cancer diagnoses because we were finding all of these early prostate cancers. Uh, and then, you know, we figured out that a lot of those people never would have had any problems if we just didn't even know that they had prostate cancer. In <laughs> other words, it, mm -hmm. the, it was, it's, it's a, re it's cancer, but it would take so long to become problematic. And it usually happens in older guys that they would have died from other reasons before they ever manifested clinically their prostate cancer. And so knowing about it early, super early with PSA screening led to Doesn't unnecessary treatment and oh, and didn't okay. really help. So actually, we started phasing out early screen, just routinely screening with PSA. Now we only do it in, when there's clinical suspicion. And so the numbers then went back down. So you just have this sort of artificial peak in the 90s from the, you know, the PSA screening. And so there's part of the decline Prostate cancer incidents, the, the, the changes in prostate cancer are just largely artifactual from mm -hmm. the changes in our screening practices. Um, so this, that's wonder, why there's so much to unpack in these numbers. There's a lot. Yeah, yeah. Part of it is just how we screen for cancer. Part of it is improvements in risk factors. Part of it is improvement in treatment outcomes. And you have yeah, to and all those things add apart. together. Yeah, for every different kind of cancer in every de demographic group, age and gender and, and race even, you have to sort of tease those numbers apart. 
I did a pretty uh, you know deep dive into the numbers when I wrote about it on science based medicine. So like yeah, some- yours is deep. Yours is deeper than some that I've seen in some other kind of popular yeah, write arounds. Like. You talked about the lead time bias, which I think yeah. is really interesting. So lead time um, bias basically is the earlier you diagnose the disease, the longer people are going to live with it from the point of diagnosis, right? Sense. Of course. Makes so sense. it seems like survival time's increased, but it's really that you just, diagnosed you it just earlier. Diagnosed it. So you have to adjust for that. And the way you do that is to look at survival time by stage, right? So for people, Stage four means it's like metastatic yeah, over a lot of the body. Right. So if like yeah. people with stage two cancer are surviving longer – than they were 10 years ago with stage two cancer. That's not lead time bias. That's got to be improvement in treatment because Mm -hmm, stage mm -hmm. two is stage two, you know. But all those things improve, right? Like diagnosing something earlier means that you have a better shot at it because, of course, treatments are generally better during stage one. But it means incidence goes up, right? It means we Mm -hmm. we diagnose more people. We may be diagnosing people who would have – we never would have known they had cancer. Um, we may be there's been some redefinition of some borderline dysplasia in the in the tissue we're, we're calling that cancer now. Yeah, um, I wonder if we're going to see a big change with um, what cervical cancer simply because yeah. they've they've recently changed the recommendations for how often women get Paps. It used to right. always be annually, no matter what. And now they're going every three to five years, mm-hmm. depending on your history. Yeah, everything we do like that will will change the numbers. Mm-hmm. And then we have, of course, the human papillomavirus vaccine, which is actually decreasing cervical yeah. cancer incidence. Uh, we're doing more colonoscopies, which is reducing um, colon cancer. You know, we're, we're actually removing precancerous polyps before they ever become cancer, and so that's an, a real improvement. And if you just look at people people with cancer at every age and every stage. Uh, are doing better, are living longer with their cancer. Although most of the gains are in early stages, the later mm-hmm. stages, not quite as much, but still there's, they're smaller, but you know. But that also makes sense if you know yeah. anything about how cancer is treated. It's so hard to fight against this monster once it's spread all over the body. The more spread it's out it is, the really... harder it is to treat. Yeah. Yeah, we're just making these incremental advantages in treating cancer every mm-hmm. year. It's a little bit better, a little bit better, you know. And and so what you wrote about in science-based medicine, I really appreciate because a lot of people have written about this because it is really good news. You know, we're we're sort of in a way making good progress in this quote-unquote war on cancer. Um, and then you took that a step further and said, let's take a step back and see why this is important for the conversation as skeptics. Because yeah. one of the common points of rhetoric for, you know, um, natural medicine, homeopathy, uh, Chinese traditional medicine proponents is that mainstream doctors are trying to keep you sick. They don't know how to treat cancer. Cancer treatments just make you worse. That's a very common argument. Chemotherapy yeah. is, is terrible for you, worse, and it's just right. going to make you die sooner. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why you should take this natural approach. And these, this is just really good hard data that shows that, no, there are improvements that are being made. And if you look at them over the long enough span of time, they're pretty massive. Yeah, it adds up. And also, yeah. I also pointed out that, you know, the, with people, the other alternative medicine narrative is that our environment is increasingly toxic. And yeah, yeah, yeah. that's why people are getting so sick. But actually, you know, the incidence of cancers are decreasing too. Not only are people mm-hmm. surviving longer with cancer, but the incidence is decreasing, partly because physicians are taking preventive steps, you know, colonoscopies, vaccines, you know, decreasing smoking, et cetera. But also, there isn't any 
big mystery increase in cancer that's happening. Like we're missing something, you know? Yeah, you go type to type and they're either getting slightly better or they're not changing. But nothing's getting worse. There's no weird unexplained spikes or shifting in the slope or anything. It's like, oh, look, when we introduced GMOs, cancers took up. Now, there's none of that. None of that's happening in there. So the numbers are the numbers. You know, things are getting slowly better, basically. Okay. Jay, you missed last week, so you got to get us caught up on who's that noisy. Okay. Last week, I played this noisy. What is it? I got a ton of responses on this, and not one person guessed it correctly. What? Oh, boy. So, yeah. So, I'll read a couple of these, too. So, somebody said, um, it sounds like a money bill counter. Oh, uh, yeah. That was sent in by a listener named Thor Peel. Oh. Very cool name. Very. Another listener said, I've been on and off listening to the SGU for about three, three and a half years, and I'm not quite sure what the noise is, but it sounds like percussive as if something is hitting a large mass of wood very quickly. So I'm going to guess it's a woodpecker. Uh-huh. <laughs> no, it's not a woodpecker. I would have recognized a woodpecker. Yeah, it's not a woodpecker. Someone said it's a jackhammer. Another person said it's a power drill. I first thought it was an old school like movie projector. Oh, ah. yeah. Hmm. Another Kinda person like said that. that it's a moth-releasing flatulence. <laughs> Hi-o. It was okay. sent in by Jim. All of you are incorrect, sir. If any of you remember, Kara made a comment on the show about two months ago, three months ago, that why don't we ever play something that's just what it is? You know, something that's like, <laughs> I don't know. Why don't you just play like, I don't know, a tuba? <laughs> and then be like, it's a tuba. Kara. Uh, so it's Kara. a slowed-down instrument. What is it? Is it a tuba? It's a tuba. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, wait. Is it somebody's lips up against the mouth? No, that's 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 a tuba. So let me. I'll read to you what's going on. So a listener, (laughs) a listener, very uh, astutely was paying attention to our conversation and decided (laughs) to send me in something very you know real and and non altered or slowed down or whatever that you know he figured it wouldn't sound. It would be super obvious. So this is uh, John Whitner, and uh, John plays the tuba full-time in an orchestra called the RSNO, or Royal Scottish National Orchestra. Neat. He said, hi, Jay, I'm playing an F natural, three octaves, and a fifth below middle C. Uh, For comparison, this is a major third below the lowest note on the piano. And he stuck the microphone just in front of the bell on the instrument. And And that's what he thinks gives it more of that jackhammer effect. But he has done absolutely nothing to the audio. Wow. So there, Kara. So there. Bam. Cool. T- t- tuba. Love it. <laughs> it's a tuba. It's a tuba. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. The frequency is just so low, you could make out the individual. You know, the like tremolo yeah. kind of to the, yeah, that's cool. Yep. Pretty wow. cool. I like it. And what do you got for this week? This week, hey, don't push me along, okay? This week, um, <laughs> Someone that you and I know, Steve, Rob Palmer. Yeah. Um Carl Rob, Palmer. Rob uh Rob is a is a well known skeptic and he's a he's a good guy. And Rob had an interesting experience. That's all I'll say. Rob sent me in this noisy. I thought this was really, really, really cool. I wonder I'm dying to hear what you guys think this is. Three reallys. Ah. <laughs> uh. That's horrifying. Oh, nails on a blackboard is not, it sounds like. Yeah. yeah, I think that was nails on a chalkboard. That's that's really bad, Jay. <laughs> is, 
people are going to hate us if we play that. Wow. Why? Well, that's painful. It's painful. Guys, it's, think that's painful. It's a little yeah, a little like more chewing annoying, tin for I guess, annoying kind of, than painful. I guess Jay doesn't have misophonia. Yeah, you're phony. Misophonia. I do. Misophonia. If you don't like n- I have nails on really the chalkboard. Oh, aliens screeching when they've been like revealed. Yeah. Um, you got that, that too, would be a good sound effect. If you, yeah, I did. Um, wow, that's because cool. I, I'm I'm intimately familiar with the movie Time Bandits. If you remember, <laughs> in one of the last scenes, when those horned kind of creatures come out and attack the dwarves and stuff, yeah. they make they make a noise that sounds like that. That's sort of their their cool. Those call. are all good yeah. guesses. If you if you have any idea what that is, or if you heard any cool noises in 2018 and beyond, you must email me at wtn at theskepticsguide.org. <laughs> You All must. Right. Thanks, Jay. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about a new sponsor this week, LinkedIn Jobs. Has any of you guys ever hired anyone? Yes. Yes. Sure. When I owned a software company in the 90s, part of it was uh, we were looking for technical people. And I know all about like how difficult it is to find candidates. You know, you, you could post your job on a, on a job board and you hope you find the right person. But bottom line is you got to check the job boards and there's a lot of work that goes into this. But did you guys know that LinkedIn has a job posting board? There is a way to post jobs on LinkedIn and use the LinkedIn service to actually find candidates for the exact skills that you need. And and the the idea that all of that information is already in there and their database is searchable. So right now, LinkedIn has 70% of the U.S. workforce on there. What? Yeah. Wow. And currently, there are hundreds of thousands of businesses who've actually posted jobs onto LinkedIn jobs over the past year. That's just over the past year. So the the volume is there because you really need the place that you're, not only where you're posting your resume, but the place where you're looking for candidates. It has to be a very well-tread site or else you're just not going to get the eyeballs that you need to find the candidate that you need. So, 22 million professionals view and apply for jobs on LinkedIn every week. Go to linkedin.com slash skeptics and get a $50 credit towards your first job post. That's linkedin.com slash skeptics for your $50 credit today. Terms and conditions apply. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. All right, well, let's go on with science or fiction. It's time for science or Fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake, and then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. We got a theme this week. The theme is robots. All right. Robots. Um, Bob, 72% of the time, Bob and I guess robot questions correctly. Robot. (laughs) Robot. (laughs) So there's always the 28%. Yeah. Okay, you ready? Do your best, sir. All right, here we go. Item number one. Engineers have unveiled a fully autonomous robotic weeder that can target and remove individual weeds with greater than 99% accuracy. Item number two, scientists successfully tested an implantable robot that can be used to stretch and lengthen organs such as the esophagus or intestines. And item number three, scientists have developed a system of soft artificial muscle for robots that produces six times greater force per unit area than mammalian skeletal muscle. The penis mitia. Penis mitia. (laughs) Still funny to me. Swords for 400. (laughs) No, he says, All I'll right, take Jay, huh? no, swords. I'll take swords for 300 minutes. That's S <laughs> words. All right. Jay, since you're very confident, why don't you go first? Confident? 
All right, I'll, I'll go first, <laughs> you rogue. All right, this one about the engineers have unveiled a fully autonomous robotic weeder, and it can target and remove individual weeds with 99% accuracy. I like this idea, like engineers have unveiled, like there's a whole room full of engineers, and they're like, okay, ready, pull pull the tarp on three. Uh, <laughs> okay, the 99% accuracy thing, I think, you know, if you're, if you're growing plants, you need it to be probably even more than 99% accurate because, you you know, you don't want it to kill 1% of your crop. It's interesting. I mean, I'm sure that there are autonomous robot weeders in the farming industry on some level, but this one, to me, seems like it has hands and does things. But okay, let's move on to the next one. These scientists that who have tested implantable robot, it's an implantable robot, Kara, mm-hmm. and it can stretch and lengthen your organs. I mean, is this a My torture God. device or is this a medical device, Steve? Yes, they have tested this thing and they have it's implantable all right well all right so let's think about why would we need this somebody has a short esophagus or intestine Mm, yeah that's true all right that's weird the esophagus though that's crazy like you're gonna stretch that out i mean i could see maybe stretching on an intestine that one scares me and this last one here scientists have developed a system of soft artificial muscle for robots that produces six times greater force per unit than mammalian skeletal muscle. Soft artificial muscle for robots and it's six times greater force. Damn, we are so obsolete, it's ridiculous. I, I kind of want the third one to be true just because we want strong robots to do cool stuff for us. And I could see them coming up with, you know, here we go soft artificial muscle. That. Those three words are the key thing in this item here. Like when are you, when you talk about it, like artificial muscle, is it similar to human muscle? Does it work functionally and chemically like a, a human muscle does or not? I could see scientists coming up with artificial uh, muscle type system. I don't know how much it mimics human muscle and, and the, the mechanism of, of human muscle, but I could see that one as being true. Uh, the one about the implantable robot. I mean, I think that that, that seems... Plausible, but I still don't get why they'd have to lengthen, stretch and lengthen your esophagus. I mean, wouldn't you have to remove it from someone to fix it first? Like, oh, God, I don't know. This is horrible. I I don't think so, Jay. (laughs) You think they take out your esophagus? I don't know. I mean, they're stretching it. They got this robot pulling on it. Sounds really intense. The robot basically has hands and feet, and all it's doing is like it's... (laughs) Puts its feet down and just pulls on the esophagus. It's ridiculous. It's like Bender, except it's Stretcher. <laughs> Stretcher the robot. Call me Bender. <laughs> All right, so my gut is telling me that the muscle one is the fake, but I, I think it's this middle one. This is esophagus intestine one, the Stretcher robot. I think that's the fake. Okay, Evan. Mm-hmm. Okay, the weeder targeting and removing individual weeds. 99% accuracy. Greater than 99% accuracy. So... The key here is that the robot has to determine what's a weed and what's not a weed. And how is it doing that exactly? I wonder if they somehow grew the weeds with some trait that the robot had to specifically be able to identify and pull out. I I don't see how it can otherwise distinguish weed from plant. Greater than 99% accuracy, that's tough. That's a tough one to digest. Um, the one about the st- stretching and lengthening of the organs, esophagus and intestines. Yeah, I think I have a feeling this one's going to turn out to be right because we're not, you know, we're not necessarily talking about people here. Um, you know, other animals have esophaguses and intestines and other things. So, uh, and they only tested it. It's not like, you know, so testing it in a small animal or something is certainly the way to go. 
I have a feeling that one's going to be right. And then the last one about the artificial muscle, this one I have the least sort of feeling for, um, six times greater force per unit area than mammalian skeletal muscle. That sounds impressive. It's probably even more impressive than I'm thinking it is. I'm going to go with the weeds because I don't think they, I don't think it was able to get that, that level of accuracy and be able to distinguish, you know, you throw this robot into your flower bed. How the hell is it going to know your petunia from your, from your, you know, dandelion? I just don't see how it will know that. And it would have to pull it out at the root level too. That's how you really remove the weeds. So I'm going to say that one's the fiction. Okay, Kara. I think that the muscle one's the fiction. I think that I I feel like I've seen really cool farm robots before. Like I've done stories back when I worked for Al Jazeera. There was this amazing strawberry picking robot that had all these crazy arms and could like gently pick just strawberries. So because it had computer vision. And the thing is, if it has computer vision, then it can totally tell the difference between its target plant and a non-target plant. So I feel like that's possible. I don't know how or like how cost effective it would be, but it does seem possible. So I'm going to go with that being science. The implantable robot that can stretch and lengthen organs as I feel like this was the the sleeper clue. Like this one's totally real, but you put it in because it sounds insane. Because I do know that there are people who suffer from like weird uh, developmental problems where they don't have – their organs are like the wrong size. I don't know though. And maybe if they're young enough, you know, if you if you get this robot in while you're still in a developmental stage and you can like stretch your organs during that thing, then you're not going to have all these like downstream problems as you grow up. But the soft artificial muscle that produces six times greater force per unit area than mammalian skeletal muscle, I just – first of all, I don't know the point of it. Maybe there's a reason to do it. But if if you have a robot, why does it have to work like a human – like human physiology? Like we already have machines that are way stronger than people and we can just use hard pieces for that. I mean maybe there's a reason for it, but I don't understand – like how soft is soft – you're not going to tell me that, are you? Like, but what you are saying here is that the soft muscle is what's actually pulling the load. Like the six yes. times greater force per unit is done by the soft muscle, not by the the hard pieces Correct. of the robot. Yeah, I think that's crazy. I don't. I don't think that's true. I'm going to say that's the fiction. Okay, and Bob. So, all right, uh, the autonomous weeder. Yeah, I mean, Kara kind of read my mind on a lot of these, so I'm going to kind of retroactively saying that she's pulling a GWB. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the weeder. Yeah, you got a database it's a of Wi-Fi plants. brain. A, data, a database of plants. I mean, and if you got even even a marginal AI, you could find it, kind of figure out what it looks like from other angles. You know, you don't, so you don't know to know the the plant from just one angle. And yeah, I mean, just pull that pull that effort up out of the dirt. You don't even have to get the weeds because if you go back a few days later, pull it up again. You know, it doesn't even have to be that mm-hmm. thorough. Um, so I think that's t- that that didn't surprise me at all. Um, and yet again, like like Kara said, number two here, this this stupid robot to stretch organs. What? That's just bizarre. <laughs> and I think we're just meant to have some visceral reaction to it. Anyway, I think I said visceral too many times this past hour, so I won't say it again. Um, so yeah, that's just like bizarre. And I'm sure they have some weird torture reasons to 
justify that. So yeah, I'm going to go with that one. But the the muscle one. But here I will disagree with Kara. Should this, I think there's plenty of reasons for soft muscle. One is just weight. It just it could be just a lot lighter, uh, a lot lighter, call. and also depending on on what the robot's going to do. Um, so sure, they've been talking about soft muscle. I've been reading about it for literally for decades. It's to the point like battery technology. Like I don't even care anymore. Just come up with something <laughs> cool and then tell me about it. It's like I, I saw this. I there is an article on this out there, and I kind of scanned the title. You don't know what and, it said. and I right and I didn't dive into it because I'm just so, so sick. I'm just so sick of artificial muscle. <laughs> News. I don't care. Just do it. I don't. You know, it's like I've read it a million times, a million iterations. So yeah, I believe it. But I still, <laughs> I still think that Steve is messing with this six times. <laughs> I, I think that's a little. That's that's probably too strong. You know, maybe it's you know, you know, maybe it's not even near human strength, but it's very promising. Blah blah mm-hmm. blah. You know, it looks cool, but you're never going to hear about this ever again. Typical stuff. So I'm going to say that the artificial muscle is fiction. Okay, so we got Bob and Kara for the artificial muscle, Jay for the esophagus stretcher, and Evan for the weed puller or the fiction. No sweep. Right. No sweep. You guys are spread out, so there's no reason not to take these in order. We'll start with number one. Engineers have unveiled a fully autonomous robotic weeder that can target and remove individual weeds with greater than 99% accuracy. Um, Evan, you think this is the fiction. Everyone else thinks this one is science. And this one is... The fiction. Oh, weed. Good job, Evan. No. F you. Solo win. I smoked Solo out the weeds. Good job, you brother. Yeah. So yeah, what's the trick? What? What's the trick? You're full of crap. Is n- this is <laughs> totally possible. This is totally possible. But it doesn't exist. Oh, so, <laughs> it doesn't exist. Did something like it exist? I think Northrop Grumman. There Northrop Grumman meat. had it. Northrop Grumman had it in that satellite, <laughs> and you just right. don't even know about it. Bastards. <laughs> All right. So there are robotic weeders. Yes. Okay. And but and they've been around for a long time. Uh, mechanical oh. weeders, robotic weeders, but they don't target individual plants or weeds. They just you just align them with the rows of the plants, and they just go through there and basically till. Around the plants mm. and and pull and pull up the weeds. So the new bit is that they are um, a company did come up with a new design for a robotic weeder that does try to target individual weeds, but it's really bad at it, and because it's hard <laughs> to do. They just they say this is 1.0. It really has a hard time telling the difference between weeds and plants. Mm-hmm. You have to put the plants like in super straight rows so it knows to avoid them. Um, they are working. I think it was some, I think Evan, you came up with the idea of tagging the plants. They are coming up with a way of tagging the plants yeah, so that the robot sense. knows to avoid them. Not yeah. tagging the weeds, but tagging okay. the crops. Yeah. So then they can basically pull out everything that's not tagged, you know, and then you're good. Um, but I really felt, I found this idea compelling. So, I mean, the technology is very primitive at this point. You know, they're, they're, they're not really doing what you might imagine, like a robot going through like what a human would do. Like we can recognize plants from weeds and we pull out all the weeds individually. That's really I what think, we need. I think you read an article from 1995 is what you read. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is January 10th, 2018. And, um, and you know, think about it, you know, so for, um, some crops, like the, the, the massive crops like corn, wheat, the, you know, we, you have to use herbicide. It, you know, hand 
polling is just is is not cost effective and it's massively inefficient. Um, but for certain specialty crops, you know, like lettuce, for example, where it's you know it's still a big big area of land, but it's but a lot smaller than you know the millions of acres of corn, for example. It, it is more plausible to hand weed. It's still expensive, though. You know, it could cost a lot of money to like one hundred fifty to three hundred dollars per section of land. You know, to hand weed it. Can't you um, just spray it with Roundup? Yeah, but some plants. <laughs> that sounds easier. Yeah, yes, yeah, like corn. You can do that. Soybeans, whatever. But some things don't. Uh, we don't have Roundup ready versions of That's them. That's true. Yeah, um, the Roundup so like, would for kill lettuce, the no, you cannot. You cannot spray lettuce with Roundup. So you you pretty much have to hand weed. But it would be cool. I mean, if we could, if we can get robots that were good enough, that were as good as people, you know, at recognizing weeds from plants, they could just continuously crawl around pulling the weeds out. Um, that could really be an effective way of controlling weeds and reducing herbicide use. And this is, I think, going to be one more piece to the pest management overall strategy that we have. So it's interesting. But yeah, but the tech isn't there yet. Again, they're saying this ads ah, 1.0, you know, it's it really is going more on just the rows, you know, like just ah, trying to avoid the rows. They're not even trying. They're not even trying. I agree. I don't think this is – I agree, Bob. I agree with you, Bob. I think this is a technology that could be there if they really developed it. I don't think this is beyond our current technology. They would just need to really develop it. It seems like we should be able to – computers should be able to do pattern recognition to like identify – like pull uh, pull out everything here that isn't the tomato plant, right? That should I can't imagine that would be too hard. Well, yeah, and like I said, they have like strawberry pickers yeah. to do that. Yeah, it's Very so weird. Yeah, yeah, mm. but they just don't exist yet. Oh. Um, yeah, so let's go on to number two. Scientists successfully tested an implantable robot that can be used to stretch and lengthen organs, such as the esophagus and intestines. That one, of course, is science. And <sighs> yeah, I mean, Kara is correct. There are indications for this, so. Uh, mm. some children are born with a, an incompletely developed esophagus. For example, they have esophageal atresia and they, mm. it, they try to stitch the, the two ends of the esophagus, esophagus together, but they're not long enough. So they have to stretch, wow. they have oh. to stretch the esophagus so that it's, mm. it's touching so they could sew the two ends together. Now, the current treatment for this, they have to, Essentially, put in a hard device, uh, a rigid device, and they and they have to essentially paralyze the child for weeks. So they Ooh. basically put them in in general anesthesia for several weeks. Oh, how while, sad! I know, That's while, insane. While they stretch the esophagus because they can't have them moving around with this device in place. But this new robot is soft. And and they've they, they've tested it in large animals like pigs. They haven't tested it in humans yet, but the the pigs were able to be awake and move around and even eat, and it was fine. And and it, and they were it basically is like two rings that they sew into the the esophagus, and it pulls pulls them together. They increased the length by two point five millimeters each day. You do that for eight to nine days, you know, and you. Move it, you know, the couple of centimeters you need to get to get them in place. Some people are also born with a short intestine; they don't have enough intestine. You could implant this device, Yikes. and it will just stretch out your intestine. Now, when you 
uh, on a tubular organ, when you apply those kind of forces, those stretching forces, they actually make new cells. You know, they it, they not oh, only good. so it doesn't make it weaker. Yeah, it doesn't just stretch it out; it actually makes it longer. The cells actually mm-hmm. reproduce and fill in, and and to to account for the stretching, and so you actually do increase the size of the organ for of these tubular organs. So that's why it works. That's so, really neat. Yeah, it's neat. It reminds me of a technique that I learned about in medical school. I think it's called the Elizarov technique where they put pins in bones and then they sh- pu- they pull them apart and they cause the bone to lengthen. So like you could use this in somebody like who has dwarfism, for example, and you could oh, add, you know, wow. add, oh, yeah. add an inch or two to their limbs, you know, it can make a huge difference in uh, their, their overall stature. Well, especially Some, if somebody has like one leg that's shorter than yeah, the other, can cause yeah. so many problems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So some parts of the body do respond to those forces by literally growing to fill in the, what's what's left behind by the stretching. Okay. All this means that scientists have developed a system of soft artificial muscles for robots that produce a six times greater force per unit area than mammalian skeletal muscle is science. Yo. Wow. Yeah, Carrie, you're mm. totally wrong, and Bob is correct. Soft, <laughs> soft muscles for robots are huge. Huge. This is this is a big focus of research because it would produce so many applications for robots that that are hard to do, difficult to do with hard parts. Yeah, you know, they, whatever. They need to be able to manipulate delicate <laughs> things, for example. That's so what I was having, saying. Yeah, and also, you know, having soft muscles means they'd be quieter. You know, they also might use less energy. They might be also more flexible, be able to get themselves into different shapes and different environments. It's lots of yeah. adds a lot of, of functionality to a robot to make it out of heart, soft parts. So you know, you could also interact with humans a little bit more nicely because they're soft. Also, ultimately, replace human muscle with this stuff. Well, yeah, yeah, sure. That's always kind so of like implied. Nice. This uses a uh, pneumatic uh, device to to cause the muscles to stretch, to, to contract. They were actually, the scientists were, were surprised at how strong it was. It exceeded their expectations. They said it can contract down to 10% of its original size. It could lift a delicate flower off the ground and twist it into a coil. And they, and the movement is, is pneumatic. It's, it's, it's done by, by air. And, the, and they were surprised at how strong it was. It generated six times more force per unit area than mammalian skeleton muscle can. Very lightweight, but as Bob pointed out, it's a huge advantage. It's very lightweight. A 2.6 gram muscle can lift a three kilogram object, said, which is the equivalent of a mallard duck lifting a car. What? A yeah. duck. Wow. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, we are so screwed, man. <laughs> and, and it can be constructed quickly out of cheap material. A single muscle can be made within 10 minutes out of material costing less than a dollar. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah, cockle. Pretty cool. This was uh, by – this is like a, they said origami-inspired artificial muscles. This was from the uh, MIT's Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Laboratory and the Weiss Institute at Harvard University, published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, CARA's favorite journal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Very cool. <laughs> Actually, this came out in late November. This is about a month old. This uh, news item, but oh, I needed geez. a third. I needed a third robot item, so I had to go to go back a little bit. Cool. So well, good job, Evan. Thanks. Another solo good job. Win. Thanks. I, I, I've I've spent many many hours pulling weeds out of gardens. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> believe me, I'd be very much looking forward to a to a robot that could do that. Uh, it would be nice. It would be nice. 
farming in the future. It'll just be a lot of little robots crawling around, pulling out weeds. I just saw Minority Report again recently with my daughter. Yes. How'd that hold up? It holds up pretty well. I mean, there's yeah. definitely some of the some of the things are dated, you know, but it's it was the Minority Report did a good job because first of all, it's in the 2050s, so they went far enough into the future. Thank you. Although maybe we'll reassess that <laughs> in the 2050s. Right. Yeah. It wasn't like <laughs> 10 years or the future. You know, they they went a good 50 years in the future, so that was good on them for that. And you know, they had the self driving cars and everything, so it was it was pretty good. Um, the one thing that I noted about it was that the cell phones are really small, so they kind of missed the whole smartphone. Thing. Oh, this was before yeah. smartphones, and also I think they missed they missed the virtual reality thing. So the whole the classic, the now iconic scene of Tom Cruise with in front of the monitors, flip with the gloves on, flipping the the images around. He would have VR goggles on. Oh, Come on, God. that would be so. Also, that would question. be so tiring. His deltoids would be fried. Come on. <laughs> well, maybe he had maybe he had contacts in, and you just didn't see them. Or no. maybe he had artificial muscle in his deltoids. <laughs> he never had to do it for more than two or three minutes. He always figures that stuff out quick because he couldn't do it longer. Yeah. But eventually, our VR headsets are going to be miniaturized and put inside oh, yeah. of our eyes. I would think so. so. Yeah, and then they'll stretch yeah. out our yeah. eyes. And yeah, along <laughs> with our esophagus. But those, yeah. little, those little spider robots running all over society doing all sorts of stuff is, is very creepy in that movie. Yeah, those spider robots are creepy. Hey, quick announcement. You guys remember Brit Hermes. We had her on our show recently. She is the former naturopath who realized that her profession was basically a scam and has been trying to raise public awareness about this. Well, Brit, in recognition of her fine work, is being sued. She has been taken to court in Germany by U.S.-based naturopath Colleen Huber, H-U-B-E-R, who is claiming that Brit has defamed her on her blog. Huber is a critic of chemotherapy and radiation therapy and cancer treatment. Instead, she uses, quote-unquote, natural therapies that include intravenous infusions of vitamin C and baking soda, which, by the way, is pure nonsense. The international skeptical community is obviously very concerned that this will have a chilling effect on legitimate criticism of unproven medical claims and practices. So we, uh, the Australian skeptics has taken it upon themselves to set up a fundraising campaign to help cover Brit's legal costs. If you want to contribute to Brit's campaign, go to skeptics.com.au slash Brit Hermes. That's B-R-I-T-T-H-E-R-M-E-S. This is definitely a worthy cause. And we are also thinking, uh, assuming that this all ends well, we're of parlaying this into a general legal defense fund to protect people who are legitimately criticizing uh, quackery and unscientific medical claims. All right, Evan, give me a quote. Even when I have no power over important events in my life, I gain a feeling of control from understanding them. And I, too, have a sense of wonder. For me, discovering the workings of nature is a vibrant, satisfying experience that is both intellectual and, and emotional. To recognize the astronomical relationship between the sun and the earth, or to understand the optical phenomena that create its rosy light, does not strip the sunset of its beauty. And that was written by Professor Stuart Weiss from his book, Believe in Magic, Psychology of Superstition. Yeah, he's a friend of ours, a friend of the show. He is. He is. Yeah. 
I actually uh, was a co-author with him on a letter to the editor about a bit of pseudoscience that got published. Nice. And he's, he's spoken for us as well. He lives in Connecticut. He has. Yes, he does. Yeah. He's a professor at uh, Connecticut, Connecticut College, New London, yeah. Connecticut. And he was, yeah. I believe, one of our first speakers when we used to host a speaker yes. series for our local skeptics group back in the 90s. So we've known him quite a while. Good guy. Yeah. Very good. All right. Well, thank you all for joining me this week. Happy 2018. Yes. yes. Welcome to 18, Jay, and thank you. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible. <laughs> <laughs>